0: Let me say a quick prayer, and then we'll begin. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've written it down, that we can read it, and that we can hear it. Lord, these are your words. This, This scripture comes from you, God. Help us to hear what you want us to hear this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Sometimes bad things happen to good people with no explanation at all. Now maybe some of you have heard of all the bad things that happened to an orphan girl from Kansas. I'm talking about Dorothy. Now Dorothy, the story of the Wizard of Oz, she was playing with her her puppy Toto her terrier, and one day a tornado comes out of nowhere, destroys her home and takes her to a magical land. And the first bad thing that happens to her is as soon as she gets there, she commits accidental homicide. (laughs) And if that isn't bad enough, she is given shoes enchanted with witchcraft and sent on a suicide mission. And her three partners on this journey are a scarecrow, a tin man, and a lion. One doesn't have a heart, one doesn't have a brain, and the other one doesn't have courage. This is looking pretty bad for Dorothy. And then she comes up to face some killer baboons and and, uh, winkies and a, a angry witch who wants to murder her. And then she accidentally murders the witch with water. And through it all, Dorothy seems like a pretty good person. She's kind. She's courageous. She's gentle. She perseveres. Dorothy seems like a nice girl. And yet, all these bad things happen to her. Our question is is very much like this this morning. Why do good things happen to bad people? And if God is good, as the scriptures profess, why does he let bad things happen to us? Now, the Wizard of Oz is a fictional story. We live a real story. We're we're here and we're experiencing life and still bad things happen to us. So we need to understand from God's perspective why this takes place, what we can learn from it, how we should respond when bad things happen. Our story today is from the book of Job, and a lot of bad things happened to Job. So let's turn to that story, Job chapter 1, and we're going to read the first five verses as we get introduced to Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There was born to him seven sons and three daughters, He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, "It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts." Thus Job did continually. Job is a godly man who loves his family and loves God. Job is a godly godly man. He's a righteous man. Now Job is from the land of Uz, not Oz. And Uz was near Palestine. So in the ancient Near East, And this story is one of the earliest in scriptures. Uh, It takes a place around the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So anywhere between uh, 2100 to 1700 BC. That's almost 4,000 years ago. That's a long time ago. And Job in our story is described as a blameless man and an upright man. Another word for blameless is pure. So what what does the text mean by this? It means that he tries to obey God. He tries to please God. He seeks to serve God. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have sin, but it means he tries to seek and serve God. Job is called upright. Why is he called upright? He's called upright because he treats those around him with respect, he treats them honorably. He, he's, he's a fair kind of man. He's a good man. Job, we get this picture of Job. He's kind of like uh, that person that you know that is just a really good guy. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't speed, he, he always seeks to uh, you know, stop at the stop sign and he, he treats you well, maybe he gives you a, a gift for Christmas. Job is a really good guy. But what separates him from everyone else is his relationship with God. Verse 1 says that he feared God and he turned away from evil. This means he trusted God, he loved God, he put his faith in God. And, it's, and it says he turned away from evil. Well, what does that mean? Well, we get this idea of what repentance is. Repentance is a turning away from evil. So we see that Job loves God and he, and he repents. He turns away from evil. Job is a godly man. But Job is also a godly man who loves his family and worships God. Now, verses two, three, five talk about uh, Job's family. We see that, that Job loves his family and that he has a good-sized family. He has seven sons and three daughters. Now, seven and three, seven is the number of perfection or completion, as we learned in the book of Revelation, this last study, and three is a similar number of, of wholeness, of completeness. Uh, and, and so what's this, what this is saying is that Job had the ideal-sized family. Maybe you're thinking, I don't know, seven sons and three girls, that doesn't sound very ideal to me. I personally am very happy that I did not have six older brothers. I only had three. But the point is, Job had a great family. He had a wonderful family, and he also had great wealth. It says that he had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. Now, back then, your your wealth was measured in your possessions, Uh, so your livestock, those things that you had, your servants. And we see here that Job was a very wealthy man. Now, he wasn't as wealthy as some of the the kings, like David or Solomon, who would sacrifice 100,000 sheep for uh, an offering to worship God. But he's what we might consider a multimillionaire today. So he's very wealthy, and he has a wonderful family. And notice something about his family. that His children enjoy each other. So not only does he have a lot of kids, but they like each other. That in itself is a miracle, Right. They're eating together, they're feasting together, they're enjoying each other. And Job loves them and they love Job. It says that Job would consecrate them. We get this image, the text doesn't say exactly, but of him just laying his hands on them and, 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 and pouring into them and consecrating them. And he would sacrifice livestock on their behalf for each one of them. So Job had you know, thousands of livestock, but you know he has 10 children and if he, he sacrificed a livestock for each one of those children, Uh, It's 10 livestock, and it says that they were partying a lot. Uh, You know, once a month, that's 120 livestock a year. I mean, this is costing Job something. His relationship with God is costing him something. But we don't see Job complaining. Job does this faithfully. He does this willingly. He worships God because he loves God, and he also loves his family. Now, I really wanted to compare one or two of you in this church to Job, uh, but I put a lot of thought in it, and I realized that none of you have 3,000 camel. But uh, I was thinking through this, and I, and I know that uh, Andrew and Amanda and Gannis, they want to get an alpaca, so that's pretty close. I, I thought Matt Gallister had a Harley-Davidson hog, but I asked Roxanne, and he has a Honda. Maybe some of you feel like you have a herd of children. Uh, I helped Jason Chambers move yesterday, and I'm pretty sure he has the strength of a camel. (laughs) The point is that Job isn't so different from those around us this morning. He was a good person. He loved God. He was was blameless and upright, and and he tried to worship God and follow after him, and yet a lot of bad things happened to him. Just because he's religious doesn't mean he gets away. So let's read why this trial happens in verses 6 through 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down it. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Satan wants to turn Job's blessings into curses. The villain of our story is Satan himself. One day, Satan comes into the presence of God. And and, and Satan is a fallen angel. He was created holy and pure by God. His name was Lucifer, and he fell from heaven, he rebelled against God, and now he is God's adversary. In fact, that's what the name Satan means. It means adversary, opponent, or enemy. And not only is Satan an opponent of God, he's an opponent of those who follow God, of the people of God. So Satan comes into the presence of God. That's important to note because Satan doesn't dwell in God's holy and pure presence. Evil doesn't belong in the presence of God. He has to come into the midst of them, come among them. Satan is the source of evil, and he doesn't belong in God's presence. And God asks him, what have you been doing? He asks him because how we spend our time reflects who we are. He says, what have you been doing, Satan? Satan says, I've been prowling around. I've been, I've been walking to and fro, up and down. He's kind of abstract. He doesn't really answer the question. And God exposes his heart. because he Satan is like that, that lion that is, is prowling the earth, seeking someone to devour. We think of 1 Peter 5, 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And God says to, to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? I don't know about you, but I personally would not want God to bring me up to Satan. But he does this. Have you considered my servant Job? He's a really—he's wonderful man. And a more little, literal translation of have you considered is have you set your heart on my servant Job? Have you set your heart on my servant Job. See, God is exposing what's already in Satan's heart. God didn't put this idea into Satan's heart. It was already there. Satan Satan was bent on destroying the people of God, those who follow God. And we see that evil originates in the heart of Satan, not of God. This is important to note. We can't blame God for evil because evil doesn't start in God's heart. It starts in Satan's heart. Now, according to the internet, The Wicked Witch of the West is one of the greatest villains of all time. The Wicked Witch of the West is is evil. She's she's green, she's cackling, she wears black, she rides on a broom, she has a, a pointy hat. And my wife and I recently watched Oz the Great and Powerful. Now, Oz the Great and Powerful is a retelling of what could have led up to the events of the wonderful Wizard of Oz. And the story is about Oscar, or Oz, who, who goes to the land of Oz. Uh, and and uh, he meets uh, some sisters. And one of them he meets is Theodora. A- and she's an, an innocent person. She's a witch, but she's kind of a good character when it begins. And she falls in love with Oz, Oscar. But pretty soon, you know, he doesn't stay very faithful to her, and, and her heart begins to grow jealous. See, wickedness begins in the heart, and she grows, she grows jealous, and she gets angry, and she just wants his love all for herself, and so she takes a bite out of a magic apple that her sister gives her to get rid of all the heartache, to, to cure her heart. Maybe it sounds a little familiar. And instead, she turns into a cackling green witch. Her soul is crushed and her heart is completely bad, no longer able to feel love. Evil originates in the heart. Wickedness begins on the inside, not on the outside. Evil doesn't originate in God's heart. It originates in Satan's. But as you may have noticed, As you've lived this life and as you've looked at the scriptures, Satan isn't the only one with a heart problem. We also have a heart problem. See, that same wickedness that originated in Satan, it's in us because we've all fallen short. We all have a broken heart that doesn't seek God. This is where evil is. It it, it lies in each one of us, and that's why we need God to come and give us a new heart to cleanse us, to forgive us. Maybe some of you are listening to this message and, and you're not convinced you have a heart problem. Just pray, pray the prayer that God would soften your heart to him, that God would do a miracle in your heart, even if you only have like 1% of faith. Pray that prayer. Ask God, God, please soften my heart if you're real. Do you want the heart of God or do you want a broken heart? Satan asks God to test Job to see what lies in Job's heart. See, Satan wants to turn Job's blessings into curses. Satan challenges God to take away all of Job's blessings. He says, you know, remove that hedge of thorns. Remove all of his blessings because the only reason he loves you is because all those good things you've given him. Now, verses 10 and 11, there's something interesting in this. Verse 10, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hand. Now stretching, uh, jumping down to verse 11, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. The word for bless is the same word that Satan uses for curse. So first we see bless, same exact Hebrew word, and then we see Satan use it a different way in verse 11 curse for some of you that's in the the notes in your Bibles see Satan is taking the goodness of God the blessings of God and he's perverting it and he's saying Job when you take away everything when you take away all of his blessings he will do the exact opposite and he will curse you and that's the question of our story when when Job loses everything will he bless God or will he curse God this is the central conflict of our story What will Job do when everything goes wrong? Now, if Job is sort of the the hero, he's the the main guy of the story, that would make Satan the villain. That would also make God the author. God is the one who, who gives Satan permission. Notice that Satan asks God to strike Job himself. Satan tells God to strike Job, and God says, no, but I do give him into your hand to do what you want with him. And so it's gonna be awful hard for Job when he experiences all these hardships that are coming to not blame God. It's gonna be awful hard not to blame God for the trials and the, the tough circumstances that he's about to go through. So if God is the author of this story where evil happens, is God evil? Well, our favorite stories are those with the best heroes and the worst villains. We love those stories of conflict, of redemption, of love. We we wear t-shirts celebrating our our favorite heroes. I think I saw three Captain America t-shirts yesterday at the move. And then we also, in some sense, like the villains in the story. Because without the villain, there's nothing. There's there's no conflict. It would be a, a pretty boring story. And did you ever think that L. Frank Baum Was evil for writing the wonderful Wizard of Oz? Do Do we call him evil because he created one of these greatest villains of all time? And remember, God didn't create Satan. God created Lucifer, and Lucifer chose to rebel. Sin originated in Lucifer's heart, not God's. Without evil, without a challenge, there can't be victory. You can never win a battle unless there is a war. Without without trying circumstances a hero cannot emerge. We can't be changed for the better. Without trouble, we can never learn perseverance. Without suffering, we can never learn hope. Without hardship, we can never learn to trust God. It's the same with the the characters in The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. They, the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and the Lion, they have to go through these trying circumstances to to find courage, to, to find a heart, to find a mind. We right here are a part of this story, and this story has hardship. But God is using it. He's using it to shape us into who He wants us to become. So the question is, when everything goes wrong, will we bless God or will we curse God? Job loses his wealth and his family in verses 13 through 19. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Job loses everything, and it seems like it's God's fault. Job loses everything. He loses his wealth, he loses his possessions, he loses his people. The Sabians came, they they killed his servants, they took his cattle, his donkey, fire came from heaven, consuming the sheep and the servants. The Chaldeans came, they killed his servants, they took his camels. Job loses all of his wealth in one day. All of his possessions, all of his riches, he probably lost many of his friends, I imagine that he was friends with some of those servants that he knew them, that he spoke with them, that he had a relationship. They're all gone. They're all wiped away. But what hurt even worse than losing everything was losing his children. We see that his children were were feasting in the house. They were eating and drinking. And what does it say? It says that a wind comes and it collapses the home, strikes the four corners. And they were in the firstborn's home. Notice that point. It signaled out that this was in the home of the firstborn. The firstborn would have received a double portion of the inheritance. The firstborn uh, was really the main name through whom Job's uh, future would be passed, Job's descendants. It's as if God is saying, I don't want you to have a future. In one moment, Job lost all of his wealth, all of his possessions, but he also lost his future everything gone Job loses everything and it seems like it's God's fault notice how all these calamities come upon Job the Sabians were peaceful traders from about a thousand miles away from Job so so why would they be there the Chaldeans were from far away as well so it's like God has led them there to attack Job and if those aren't clear acts of God two actual acts of God occur Notice that the, the lone survivor says that fire of God fell from heaven. See, Satan has put it into, the, into this man's heart. He, he attributes it to God. See, see, Job, look what God has done to you. God has judged you. He has consumed your servants and your animals. Another act of God, the, the wind coming and destroying the home. And through it all, remember that Job doesn't have the perspective that we have. Job didn't get to witness the throne scene with with Satan coming into the presence of God and saying, hey, I'm going to attack Job. Job doesn't know the divine perspective. And yet, we wonder, will he have a heavenly perspective through it all? He lived this trying circumstance. So the big question is, how will Job respond to what has happened? Will Job bless God or curse God in verses 20 through 22? Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. When everything goes wrong, Job praises God. When everything goes wrong, Job praises God. Job stands up, he tears his robe, and he shaves his head. And these are public signs of mourning, of grief, of loss. It's like when we wear black to a funeral. It's just a little bit more public than we do today. But what Job does after these initial signs of grief is what separates him from everyone else. Our verse says that he fell on the ground and worshiped. What the the original text is saying is that he bows down. It's just one word, he bows down. Job prostrates himself before God and Job worships God. There is no cursing of God. Job blesses God. And instead of blaming God, He declares that God has exposed him for who he is. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Job is admitting his utter dependence on God, that God has created him, so God has every right as his creator to take everything away. Job is saying, I am dependent upon you, God. I don't get to take anything from this life, but I trust you. He says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. When everything goes wrong, Job praises God. And I think this is what Job wants us to get from the text today. This is this is the main point. This is what Job wants us to learn. When everything goes wrong, praise God with your everything. When everything goes wrong, praise God with your everything. If this same thing happened to you and to me, how would we respond? Would you turn to God and bless him, or would you curse him? Would you declare your utter dependence upon God and say, God, I need you, blessed be you. I I have nothing without you, even in the worst of circumstances, even in those, those trials that I did not expect, that I did not want to go through. Will you bless God, or will you curse him? When everything goes wrong, praise God with your everything. When everything goes wrong, praise God with your everything. When Job responds in praise, Satan loses. When we respond in praise, Satan loses. Verse 22 says, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. See, our God has a a wonderful way, a powerful way, of taking bad circumstances and turning them into good. That Job has gone through all these evil things, and yet something good comes out of it. We believe in a God who can actually take evil and change it into good. That's the type of God we believe in. Our God is a redemptive God. But how do we know that God can truly change evil into good? Well, God turns evil into good through his son, Christ Jesus. If we look at our story as a whole, we see that Job is a suffering servant. Job serves God and he suffers. And in Isaiah, we see that, 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 that term uh, used, uh, Scripture describes a suffering servant. And that, that suffering servant uh, is Christ. It's the Redeemer. It's the one who will come and save his people with all their broken hearts, with all their sinful hearts, with all their wicked hearts. A servant will come and he will suffer to pay the penalty for us. In other words, Job's past sufferings, why why I think we see suffering so early in Scripture is to point forward to the coming Messiah, to the coming Redeemer. Job foreshadows Christ in that way as the suffering servant. And notice, God doesn't really answer the problem of evil in this passage. He doesn't lay it out for us. This is why bad things happen. So God doesn't answer the problem of evil, but he does solve it. God doesn't answer the problem of evil, but he does solve it, and he solves it through his son, Christ Jesus. That he sent his son to rescue us from our hurt and from our pain and from those trying circumstances. That one day, if we trust in Christ, we will enter into eternal life. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God bought everlasting life with his son, Christ Jesus, with with the worst of suffering on the cross. And you know what? Bad things don't happen to good people because nobody is good. We all have sin in our hearts. But a a bad thing did happen to the one good person. That's the cross. It happened to Christ. See, Christ never sinned. He He never lied. He never cheated. He never was jealous in his heart. He was never coveting. Christ was the spotless lamb. He was perfect, even though we and and Job are not perfect. And he died on the cross so that if we trust in him, we will know good. Doesn't this just make you want to praise God? When everything goes wrong, praise God with your everything. Our God can turn evil into good through his son, Christ Jesus. Now when Dorothy first meets the Wizard of Oz, he is a scary face in a column of smoke. Going back to the wonderful Wizard of Oz now, and we see, we see Dorothy meet him, and it, it's just this very scary image, just a face, a, a, a bodiless face, a giant face. And this is kind of the image that, that you and I sometimes have of God. The, the apologist Greg Kokel points out the Wizard of Oz's similarity to God. That for many of us, God is just this, this, this cloudy, murky figure who looks upon us with anger and judgment and is a loud voice. But when Toto pulls back the curtain, we see who Oz is. Oz is a man. See, God has become a man on our behalf. As Greg says, God has entered into our experience. And this is extremely comforting because God hasn't said, you know what, I know evil is wrong and it's gonna hurt you, just go ahead and and go deal with it over there. God, who created us and who is the author of the story, has entered into the story with us through his son, Christ Jesus. He has become incarnate, God in the flesh. Doesn't that make you just want to praise God? Doesn't that make you just want to worship God because God understands our suffering? He has experienced our suffering. When everything goes wrong, praise God with your everything. When everything goes wrong, praise God with your everything. Let's pray. Father God, I confess that I don't know what all these people are going through, that each one of them has some sort of challenge or trying circumstance, whether it's family members that are going through trying times or their jobs or, or it's happening to them personally. God, we thank you that you have not abandoned us, but you have entered into this experience that you have experienced suffering, and that if we trust in you, you've experienced it on our behalf so that we can know you and love you and one day be set free from all of this pain, all this suffering, all this evil when you return. Thank you, God, for Christ Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Amen. Please rise for the benediction. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen.